Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. love that hymn and love to be with God's people. And so today we're giving Pastor Mike a much-deserved break. He's um, pray for him as he's finding refreshment in his time off this week. Um, and he has assigned me to preach today from the Gospel of John. So if you would turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, please. We're going to be in chapter 12. We're going to be in chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The chapter of John, chapter 12. And this is what we call the triumphal entry. Before I start, let me play really quick. If you pray with me as you turn your Bibles there. Uh, Father, I need your help right now. Lord, I am a weak vessel, Father. I stand here before you in humility and begging in mercy like the psalmist. May the meditations of my heart, may the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, Lord. Father, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate us, that you would open our hearts, that you would bring your words forth, that you would help us in this time, Father, to speak your word and to receive your word. And Father, if there's anything that I may say that is not of you, that you will bring it to pass and you bring it to pass quickly. Father, we commit this time to you. Meet us here, Lord. Speak to your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Gospel of John here is uh, the triumphal entry. We're, we're coming into the Lord going to the cross. But let me start by telling you there's a famous entry in a journal of a missionary. And the journal entry said about a missionary who had spent time, about 20 years, serving in a really tough place above, um, uh, overseas. And, and he had translated most of his time. He spent translating the Bible, and he had sacrificed a lot, family, time, resources to go where the Lord had called them. And finally, after 20 years of working in this place and bringing the word of the Lord to these people and establishing a church and, and leaving a strong presence of the gospel, the Lord called them back to his hometown. And so he got on a boat and he went back to Great Britain where he was from. And he was feeling a little discouraged for the transition. And as he was coming into the port, all of a sudden, he looked outside on the boat and he saw this big banner that said, Welcome home. And all of a sudden, this band began to play and fireworks started going off. And he said, What a welcome I have. Wow. I didn't know I had so many people that loved me and cared for me here. Until he turned to the other side and he realized that there was a boat coming with the King of England on board. Discouraged as he was, he got off the boat and was received by uh, his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord there. And, and then the journal entry ended with a couple of phrases more, but I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to stick around until the end of the sermon to find out what it said. So a little teaser for you to stick around. But the reality is that we're going to see in the gospel here, of John, in verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 12, that the Lord was coming to his own. He was entering into Jerusalem as the king, but they had the wrong perspective of him. 
they were looking at him in different ways, which were all wrong. But God knew what he was going to do. They thought of him as a king who was going to start an insurrection, who would take over the government and set his government and Israel in power over the world. And that is good in certain ways, but it missed the picture of who God is and what the gospel is. And so today we're going to look at how John arranges this passage in what I would call five responses, five perspectives of how we respond sometimes to God's plans in our lives and how we can distort the gospel as we seek to live our life before a a holy God who loves us and wants to redeem and restore us. So starting off, the first response that we see is, let me read the whole passage and then we'll jump in. Starting there in verse 12, if you read with me, John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The next day, the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See? This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That's the word of the Lord. So we're going to walk through this verse, these passages, and the first thing that we see out of this five responses is the first response to Jesus entering into this Jerusalem as a king is they said that they heard this, this great crowd. Well, who is this great crowd? Theologians debate back and forth, but I want to propose to you, and I think the most accurate translation here is that this great crowd is all the people that are coming for the Passover, all the Jews that are coming for the Passover festival. If you can imagine a UTEP football game that is packed out, but multiply that times 10, most historians estimate that about 100,000 to 200,000 Jews would come to Jerusalem at this time for the 
uh, Passover feast. And what they would do is that they would bring palm branches with them and they would build these little booths where they would stay outside of the temple. And then inside the temple, they would buy or either they would bring with them animals for sacrifices. And then they would celebrate throughout the whole week this whole remembrance of Passover and being brought out of uh, oppression in Egypt and then being in the, in the desert with God, wandering for 40 years. And they will celebrate God's faithfulness. And so this is the great crowd, and this is the response of the great crowd to uh, the Lord Jesus entering, finally. See, the Gospel of John is a little bit of context. It's a range. It opens up in chapter 1 with this beautiful poem. Right in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. And to everybody who believed in him, he gave him the right to become children of God. And this beautiful poem that sets up the whole gospel. And then, and then it begins this progression of Jesus demonstrating himself as the true I am, where he fulfills the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And finally, we see here that he has done his last miracle, and that is he lifted Lazarus out of the dead, and he said, I am the life and the resurrection. And now, after he has completed that, now he's on his way to the cross and he's entering Jerusalem as a king. And the crowds have heard of this, and so they have all gathered and they come. And what they want of Jesus and what they think of Jesus is what I call a self serving response. This is a self-serving response. Why do I say that? Well, because the great crowd came, and we have a couple clues in the scriptures. First, they brought palm trees and branch, palm branches to him. Most historians would agree that palm branches in those times meant something specifically, and that was it is a way to honor a king who is coming to conquer another king. It was a militant uh, symbol of praise for someone coming to take over and conquer another earthly king. And it was, it was a practice in Greco-Roman culture. The ironic thing is that in Jewish practice, palm branches were used for one specific thing only, and that was for the Passover and preparing the place for the lamb to be sacrificed. So on one side, the crowds they were looking at Jesus coming in, and in their mind, all they could think was, in earthly eyes, how can Jesus alleviate my suffering now? How can Jesus overcome, and how can Jesus be the conqueror of my socioeconomic problems? How can he help now? Because then they shout Hosanna, and they're quoting Psalm 118, and as we read earlier, Psalm 118 is a psalm of militant victory again. And Hosanna means, it's, it's interesting that it's quoted in the Aramaic here. It's not in the Hebrew or in the Greek, it's in the Aramaic. And that's a clue for us because in the Aramaic, Hosanna meant save us now. But when we say Hosanna in the Jewish Hebrew language in the Old Testament, it was again tied to the Passover. So John is giving us these clues that from this crowd's perspective, they're looking for an earthly savior, someone who would alleviate and give them comfort in this time. And that is not bad. But from Jesus' perspective, he was coming to do something much more. He was coming not to only alleviate our suffering today, 
but to deal with something that was really wrong with us, which was our sin. See, uh, there's a lot of this, this distortion of who God is and his plans today. There's this trying of molding God into our image. There's a self-serving way in which we look at God and his plans and we think that it's everything is about us. It's not about us. It's about him and his glory. And what makes him so glorious, and let me give you a definition of glory because we throw this word around so much, but I think a very simple definition of glory is the beauty and the honor that someone deserves for who they are and their character. And the beauty and the honor of Jesus is that he came and laid down his life to solve a great problem, and that was our sin that made us enemies against the holy, all-powerful God. We need a God that is bigger than just my disease. We need a God that is bigger than can just solve my relationships. We need a God that is bigger than can solve my provision today. We need a God that can solve the broken relationship between me and a holy God. There's a lot of this preaching out there today is 10 points on how to live a better life tomorrow. But nothing about how is my sin being dealt with by the gospel every day so that I can gain victory and look more like Christ and bring him glory. And that is the first wrong perspective to the plans of God. It's a self-serving perspective. It's a way of fashioning a God in our own desires. And this is a theme throughout the Old Testament. We saw that at Mount Zion. What was the first thing that Israel did when God delivered them from Egypt? And Moses left them unattended and went up to the Mount Zion to meet with the Lord. They fashioned a God in their own desires, a golden calf. You know why in the Hebrew it says why God was so upset at this golden calf? It was not because they had created an idol so much that he was upset, but it was because this idol represented him and what they used to represent their God was a dumb animal that did their bidding. Sometimes in our lives, when God is doing things, we can begin to let our desires dictate the way we see God. That's why we got to stay in the word of God, be surrounded by the church of God under good and sound doctrine teaching so that we are always in better ground, seeking to honor and worship and see the true God of the Bible and not the one that our desires wants to fashion. We see this all over the, the world today. I was planning a vacation for my son. I wanted to go to Disneyland, take him to experience that. And unfortunately, I heard that now they're going into this transgender agenda and, and so forth. And I understand that in the world, they're going to act like the world. But that's a plain example of how they are. Now there's theologians saying that because God made men in his image and there's a man and a woman, therefore God is without gender. That is a twist in a scripture that is trying to create a God that would bid the desires of someone who rather be homosexual than be holy. So we need to be careful when we read the Bible that we read and understand and know the true God of the Bible. As hard as it is, don't skip over those hard passages where he talks about his sovereignty or his wrath. We love to hear about his love and, and we need to, but we also got to maintain the other side of his holiness and perspective. 
And so that's the first one. It's a self-serving response to the plan of God. They, they thought Jesus was just going to come and alleviate some earthly things. And we know this because these same people that were shouting Hosanna and laying branches at his feet were the same people that crucified him three chapters later. They said, give us Barabbas and crucify him. And see, the Lord knew this. That's why in the previous chapter, he said he looked out to Jerusalem and he wept for them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And so that's the first, the self-seeking, self-serving response to God's plans in our lives. Then the next response is the Lord's response. He says here, starting in verse 14, then Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. What was Jesus' response? Number one is he sat on a donkey. A donkey was a sign of peace and humility. When they wanted to make him a king and, and be this guy that would overtake the government, Jesus says, I've come with a different assignment. I am the king. But I'm not just the king of the earth. I'm the king of the whole cosmos. I'm the king of the unseen and the seen. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And I have come to do a greater work than just change the government. So theologian said if our greatest need was economic relief, then he would have sent an economist. If our greatest need was cure from diseases, he would have sent a great doctor. If our need was Something else, he would have sent an specialist, but our greatest need was forgiveness, so he sent a savior. And that's what Jesus came to do. He sat on a donkey to bring peace, not only between each other, but primarily between us and God. By laying himself on the cross and bearing your sin and my sin for the forgiveness and for his grace to us. And then his humility, I think, is an example for us. The Lord wants us to see, I think, a practical example there is as we, we are to recognize and we are to understand when the Lord gives us honor and authority in places of this world, whether it be in the church or in the secular world. But let's model Jesus, right? Because in all his power and in all his authority, he used it not to his advantage, but to serve others. And so in that same way, wherever you're given honor and authority, use it not to serve yourself, but to be a servant like Christ Jesus. Serve others, be a servant leader. And then it says here, it's so interesting, in verse 15 it says, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. But we just read in Zechariah 9.9, Brother Mike, or he read this, and he said, Rejoice greatly. So why is there a change there? Why did Zechariah say, Rejoice you greatly, O daughter Zion? But John has changed this to, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Well, again, because Jesus understood his assignment. He understood he had a different perspective. He was not coming to conquer so that people will rejoice. He was coming to die so that people will be saved. And so daughter Zion is an interesting verse, too. If you look throughout the Old Testament, the word Zion and daughter there is used only for one time and one specific place. 
And that is where heaven and earth meet together. That is where the spiritual and the unspiritual meet together. If you would turn your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Turn your Bibles there with me for a second in Hebrews 12, verse 18. Give you some time to get there. As you're there in Hebrews 12, verse 18, this is what uh, some of your Bibles might title the mountain of fear and the mount of joy. And the writer of Hebrews is bringing this concept of Sion and he's applying it to the Mount Sion when Israel was released from Egypt. And look, let me read verse 18 through verse 24. Listen, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches a mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sign was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So here the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of Mount Sion, where the holiness of the Lord was dwelling amidst sinful people. And they couldn't even approach it. They would have been obliterated. If an animal even touched it, that he would have to be stoned to death. I mean, Moses was terrified. It was a terrifying, it is a terrifying thing to stand behind before a holy God without the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing more terrifying to me than a holy God without the righteousness of Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews is reminding them then, but then he says now, but because of Christ and because of what Christ has done, this new covenant, look what it says in verse 23. But you have come to Mount Sion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of his firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirit of the righteous made perfect, to, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Man, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you understand what the writer is saying there? Do you understand what Jesus had in mind when he was entering as a king? He says, I am going to break the chasm between a holy God and sinful people. I am going to be that new covenant which allows him to come, not into the mountain of fear, but into the mountain of joy where thousands upon thousands of angels are worshiping in joyful union, Jesus. And that is what we have, and that is the kind of king we had in Jesus when he entered. That's what he had in mind, to bring heaven and earth and reconcile things. His ultimate end is not that we have good life here, but that we will be restored in the new heaven and the new earth and we enjoy eternity and we delight in him forever. That is a big plan that God has for us. Sometimes we don't understand God's plans because we only operate in the earthly, but God operates in the earthly and in the heavenly. And so it is for us not to fully understand him because his ways are harder than our ways, but it is for us to trust him and glorify him through it. That is the response that Jesus gives us. 
And then going back, then the third response that we have uh, here in verse 12 is, now we have the response of the disciples. Starting in verse 16, it says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. What is the response of the disciples? So I call it the self-understanding response to God's plans. I don't know about you, but I mean, I was an engineer. I was a planner. I, 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 liked to, I, I went to engineering because I wanted to understand how things work. Since I was a kid, I went and broke things apart just to understand like what was inside of it and what makes them tick and how do they work. And, and I got in trouble a lot, and it's okay. <laughs> now I have a son. I understand. He does the same thing. But when it comes to God, it doesn't matter how much theology I study, how much of the word I study, there's going to be times when he's not going to reveal the full picture. And it's okay. Because we cannot take in the full picture. If God was to reveal to us the whole plan of salvation in Genesis 1, I think Adam and Eve would have exploded. It was too much. That's why we have progressive revelation. That's why he takes us from one place of faith to another. From one degree of glory, says Paul, to another. And it is also in our lives. Sometimes he will do things in your life that you don't fully understand. Like the disciples, they don't fully understand. But you can be assured of one thing. is that God is glorifying himself in your life. And that is good. That is the best thing that you can have in your life. That God is wanting to glorify himself through you because he is good. And he is love. And he is holy and he is merciful. Every attribute that he is, is for our benefit. So what is our duty? Well, Proverbs says, for example, do not lean in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. He doesn't say, I will show you the way. He says, I will clear the way for you. You know, when me and my wife were going through cancer, I wanted to figure it out. And, and I guess I did figure it out in a sense because somebody gave me a little book by John Piper called Do Not Waste Your Cancer. And what I learned there was this principle, is that you may not understand why God is doing it, but it has a purpose and it's good. And he will glorify himself through it. So whenever you're going through times of prosperity or trials, don't try to see the full picture. You don't have that kind of vision. See, God can see the storm, and he can see you in the middle of the storm. God can see the forest fire, but he can see you there by the trees. You cannot. All you can do is trust who he is and that he's good. We can be like Thomas, right? What did Thomas do? He walked with the Lord for three years saw him get crucified, resurrected. And it was not until the Lord was in his glorified body that comes into this room and Thomas had to touch the scar in the glorified body of the Lord. Then he says, now I believe you. Are you going to wait until we get to heaven in your glorified body and see the Lord and touch his scar and say, okay, God, now I believe you. Or are you going to believe him now? Because Jesus responded to Thomas says, 
Blessed are you who believe, but blessed was more those who did not see or touch and believe me. Whatever the Lord is doing in your life, believe him, trust him. He's good. He's for you. He's not against you. And he has a greater, bigger plan that you can never fathom. Love what the scripture says with Paul. It says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor mind has conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love him. So that's the second response apart from the Lord. The first one was a self-serving response to God's plans. The second one is a self-trying to understand. And, and I, I, just a practical way, if you try to understand, you're going to get stuck. So just let it go, trust the Lord, and move forward. Some of you may need to hear that I've been in that place where I wanted to understand the Lord and I couldn't just believe him and move forward in what he had for me next. So don't have a self-serving response. Don't have a self-understanding response. And then look at number 17. The other response, it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because... They had heard that the, he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, here's the Pharisees. See this great thing. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The third response is that of the Pharisees. And that's what I would call a self-righteous response to God's plan. A self-righteous response to God's plan. He was this man who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders, who, who were to be the ones in the scriptures, who were to be the ones to teach about God. And instead of understanding him, instead of trusting in him, instead of recognizing their savior, they saw him as a threat. So much that they wanted to kill him. Not only him, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus for being raised from the dead. You want to know, I, when I've walked in self-righteousness in my life, one of the things that I've understood and noticed, as this passage points out, is first it says, this is getting us nowhere, is that I cannot overcome my sin. And I can feel like them. I, this, I'm, I'm getting nowhere. I'm going against God's plan because I'm trying to save myself. I'm trying to overcome my own sin. And I'm getting nowhere because I don't have neither the power nor the ability that only God and his Holy Spirit has to overcome sin. So if you feel like a Pharisee today, where you feel like you're just getting nowhere with your sin, maybe it's because you need to surrender that and ask the Lord to come and him to give the power and the victory. The other thing is they wanted to kill Lazarus is when I'm being self-righteous, instead of being other-centered, I become self-centered, and I start to question God, blessing other people. Like, really, God, you're going to bless that sinner over there? I was going to confront them with, like, five sins. But instead, God, you went and blessed them, redeemed them, and restored him. And now he's shining your light so brightly. When we're being self-centered, we can be like the older brother in the prodigal son story. We can think only about us. And then lastly, they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. They were mad that people were following Jesus. They were upset that the whole world were going after Jesus. One sign that we're in self-righteousness is we stop doing outreach to others. 
I'm, I'm just going to say it in a way that it's been in my life. If, if all I do is do Bible study, and all I am is in Bible study, and I have 10 different Bible studies, but not once has the Lord shown me or opened my eyes to see the hurting around me, to reach out to the hurting around me, to share the gospel, to make a disciple, then I am just focused on myself. And I have fallen into self-righteousness because all I can see is here. But God wants to see here. And as he feeds us and as we mature, we should have a greater love for those that are broken around us. So that's a self-righteous response. We don't, have, we don't want to have a self-serving response. We don't want to have a self-understanding response. We don't want to have a self-righteous response. But then the next two are a little bit interesting. Two more responses there in verse 20. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And so here's the response of the Greeks or the Gentiles. And most theologians agree that probably these are a group of people who became Jewish, who became God-fearers, who saw this great God, Yahweh, like the woman at the well in John 4, who was a Samaritan woman who was probably a prostitute who was shamed by her community, but who the Lord said, can I have some water? And after that, changed her life with living water. And so the response here is a response of, how can I lead people to the Lord? How can I be ready when somebody's seeking Jesus? Because Andrew and Philip were known for doing that. They both brought their brothers to the Lord. And when the Greeks came up, who were not allowed to go into the inner temple, they were not clean enough, they were not good enough, they were second-tier believers or Jewish people, they wanted to see the Messiah, they wanted to see Jesus. And so a good response here is the self-denial, the, the one that looks at those who are looking for him and is ready to bring him. To Jesus. Can you think? I just give you a little homework. Go home, pray, think is who are those Greeks around me who want to know about Jesus? It may be a family member, it may be a co-worker, and maybe all you have to do is invite him to coffee, sit down and say, Hey, let's read the Bible together. Hey, can I tell you about this great savior I have? Can I tell you about this great man, Jesus? It might take a little bit of your time. It might be uncomfortable at first. But the rewards of seeing the Lord work in your life and draw people to himself are of eternal value. And then this is really compiled to, to really how Jesus wants us to respond now. And this is the final response or the final way to respond. It says, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come, there in verse 23, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. 
for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Here's our response. Here's the, the, the response that the Lord desires of us, and that is a self-denial response. Not a self-serving, not a self-understanding, not a self-righteous, but a self-denial. Deny yourself, says the Lord. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, the Lord bids us to die to ourselves. If we don't die to ourselves, then we will not be able to produce fruit for him. We must first die to ourselves. What does it mean to die to yourself? Does that mean that all of a sudden you stop doing anything? Or No, it means that you give claim to authority of all of who you are to Jesus Christ. Your bank account, your desires, your family, everything who you are now belongs to Jesus. And whatever he says, look what he says. While anyone, he says, and anyone who, who loves their life will lose it, but if anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. Those are strong words. I could soft pedal those verses and say, some softer words, but I mean, the word of the Lord says you should hate your life. You should hate your sin. You should hate the depravity that is in our hearts. We should hate the fact that we are separated from God. That should be something that we hate, and we should love Christ's life in us. We should love Christ. We need to die to ourselves so then Christ can live in us. And then what does that mean practically in our lives? Verse 26 Whoever serves me must follow me. It's very simple. As you die to yourself and then you receive the life of Christ and you rejoice in the life of Christ and you hate your own life, now you just follow him wherever he calls. Follow him. And then it says, where I am also I will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Then you will experience true fellowship with the living God. Have you felt distance from God? Is God an abstract kind of idea? Is I think of it when I play soccer. Like I, I, there's some guys who I thought were, I mean, they were amazing. I admire their, and I wish I could play like them. And I would go see them play. And I, I was a big fan of some of these professional soccer players, but I never knew them closely. I never spent an evening with them on dinner and heard their heart and became a friend to them. A lot of us can sometimes be walking with the Lord like a fan. We just admire him, we share for him, but he's far away and we don't really have a relationship with him. But what Jesus wants is not fans. He wants intimate friends that come and dine with him, that understand his heart, that hear his voice, that bring his bur your burdens to him and you know he's hearing you. Is Jesus a fan? Are you a fan of Jesus today? Are you an intimate friend? And that comes through self-denial and through allowing Christ to live in you. As Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And so after all those responses, it really begs the question, at least for me, well, and I want to point your attention to Revelation 5 and end there. And I'll, I'll promise I'll tell you what happened with the missionary. Don't worry. Revelation 5. See, the reality of our Lord is beautiful. 
In John 12, he comes in in humility, sitting on a donkey to go die and to be humiliated, to be stripped naked, to be slashed almost to death, and then to be mocked and ridiculed as he picks up a cross and walks up a mountain, and then he's elevated and crucified, and they keep mocking him, and they put a crown on him, and they mock him because he says he's the king of the Jews. But in verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, we see what happened after the resurrection and when he ascended to heaven. I'm just going to read this verses starting in verse 1. That I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on both sides and a seal with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And so John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. The one of the other, one of the other said to me, Do not weep. See? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and his seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll. And that scroll was the will of God to bring redemption and restoration to all of reality, and no one was found worthy on earth or under the earth or anywhere. It was only Jesus. And they say, look at the lion. But what did John see when he looked at the lion of Judah? He saw a lamb that had been slain. That is our Lord. He is worthy. And this is why we follow him and we die to ourselves, because he is worthy. And just like that missionary, he came home and he saw the other boat and it was not for him, it was for the king of England as he got down and he was greeted and he was discouraged. Then he says in his journal, but then the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, son, the reason that reception wasn't for you is because you're not home yet. But when you come home, I will receive you and no king on earth will have a reception like yours. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for your mercy. Oh, thank you that you were the king who came not just to restore and redeem this earth and bring peace here, but Father, to bring peace between us and the Father and you and the Holy Spirit that we may again dwell with you and delight in you. I pray for each and every family here, Father, that as they go through the plans that you have for their lives, Father, that they would have a response that is honoring, glorifying to you, and that is one of self-denial, of dying to themselves, and to rejoicing in the things that you will do for them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.